so, I mean, how 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 much work goes into making sure that things get done the right way? I mean, you, you as you said before, you have got loads of hours of meetings, and you do lots of paperwork and that. But also, you, I'm guessing you put work in your mind as well, and you exercise, you do other things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what goes into it is an attention to detail. Um, but I, I've got several kind of mantras on on business, and one one of my mantras is that business you could break it down into two c's um communication and clarity of communication and if you can get that right then you'll be successful because uh when i was about 22 23 first job i worked for a training manager and he used to be a, an avid reader of management books and he had loads of small like information booklets on management topics and he lent me one and it was um, a book that said uh, and it was titled who needs to know and it was only probably about 16 pages but it just gave loads of anecdotes and loads of reasons why whatever you do in business or in in your in your in, in your company you need to think if you do something who needs to know what you've done who's impacted by it and it's interesting that it's stuck with me and, and I find that now is part of what I do and I think of it all the time. So if I do something with one of my clients, I make sure I tell the right person what I've done because it will impact them. I don't want them to find out when something goes wrong. It's that kind of thing. It's just, it's a live and learn situation, but it's also about attention to detail and good communication. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Marvin's World podcast, a podcast where we speak to transcendent and exhilarating individuals, people who help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the podcast, see great value in it, share it with your friends and give us a review on iTunes or Amazon. Today we have an absolutely awesome and scrumptious guest. <laughs> His name is Mark Exley. He is he is the owner and runner of Gravitas HR Solutions, and his team and him are basically whatever solutions you need to get the most and create the right environment for your staff to produce the best results. They are your people. Hello, Mark. Hi. How are you doing today, Mark? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I see it's a nice little office you got there. How, how have you been keeping during all this? I think we just be kept, kept ourselves busy and keep helping businesses. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of problems out there for business at the moment. And our job is really to support them and keep them going. And that could be anything from helping them get the right people, helping getting the people back to work, and then support the people in remote working locations. So we're pretty much, we've worked pretty solidly throughout the whole of the um, COVID period, um, trying to help others. Mm. And uh, tell us a bit, for people that know, know you and don't know your story, like, tell us a bit about how you became, like how you got into HR and how you got into the, your passion of managing and helping companies produce the most of the employees. Okay, so... Um, when I finished university a long, a long time ago, I, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. 
Um, and I just started looking at different management disciplines and what at the time was called personnel came up as one. And I thought it looked quite interesting dealing with people, which was something that I was personally interested in. So I looked to that, got into a graduate trainee job with a large food manufacturer. And from then just worked a career for 20, 22, 23 years um, in corporate human resources. So helping businesses. And, and during that time, I also became a specialist in reward management, which is how we pay people, how we reward people in businesses We're through bonuses, commission plans, um, company cars and other non-cash benefits that they may get as well. So I started to go into a specialist field there um, and that got me interested more in employee engagement as well, how we engage our staff and make them more successful within their role and become a, an advocate for the company or a brand advocate, if you like. So I got interested in the whole package of how we motivate people in businesses, how we keep them switched on and how we get the best from them and give them the most rewarding experience. Okay. And how did you founding your own company? Okay, so um, in 2006, I was starting to get a bit disillusioned with um, working in a corporate environment. You know, there were a lot of changes there. There were loads of redundancies and I was involved in all that. And, and I just thought I could do this better on my own. So I made the, what was at the time quite a bold decision to leave full-time employment and set up a limited company of my own and contract back in those services to various similar sized companies. So it was a massive leap of faith. I was lucky at the time that my wife had a decent job. So there wasn't as much pressure on me as the sole breadwinner. Um, and and that's what we did. So 2006, I set the business up, and in six years later, my wife joined the business as my business partner. So it is truly a family business. We have one other employee. Um, so I wouldn't say it's always plain sailing because working with your partner, your wife, your husband, whoever, is quite stressful because you see them all day at home, and then you're seeing them at work as well. Um, but it is very rewarding because you're building something together. And so we built this as a consultancy over the, the last eight years. And prior to that, I had the business for six years. So, so it, we're in our 15th year now. Um, and I think you'd say as many businesses fail in the first two years that we've done quite well to last 15. And um, I mean, how would this thing, the partnership sort of work in a way? Like, you know, you have a good cop, bad cop thing you see in the movies with criminals. What, what is the relationship with you and your wife with that? <laughs> well, she'd probably hate me for saying this, but <laughs> I do tend to be more the good cop than the bad cop, and she's possibly more the bad cop than the good cop. So <laughs> we work well together, but we it's all for a common goal, a common aim. So it's not a... Um, yeah, it's not quite so demarked in that way. You know, we, we, we both have to do the same kind of jobs for different clients who we lead on. Um, and there's certain things that, that my wife's better than I am. My wife's called Dawn. She's better than I am at certain things. I'm better than her at other things. So when, you when you're dividing up the work, you try to put the most appropriate person in there. Yeah. yeah. So 
one of the things that I want to look at is like, yeah, I mean, how, how do you guys approach all these different clients and manage it? I mean, it must be challenging because like, what one approach isn't going to work with someone else. So you have to keep on adjusting and, Okay, the, the, the key to it is understanding what the client needs. So there's a lot of questions asked and a lot of listening done. So you ask the questions, you listen, and then you tailor your response. So every client we work with, very few of them have the same service from us. There's slight differences with everyone. Some clients are much more self-sufficient than others. Some of them need you to do the more top-line advice. Some people need you to do the whole job it will depend on their own capabilities and their bandwidth. Um, so, so we will tailor every single job to the client. We don't have like a, um, a modular approach to it. Certain things will always be the same. If you're providing contracts and policies for people, there's lots of similarities, but you may do it in a slightly different way and tailor them slightly to their work practices. Okay. And what has what being an entrepreneur with you and your wife given you guys, right, as opposed to your previous life of working for others? Okay, I think, I think just to, to backtrack slightly, many people go into business because they want to be their own boss. So what they get out of it is not being told what to do by somebody else. But with that comes a lot of responsibility. You have to go and find your own work. You have to develop your own business and you have to make some quite difficult decisions. What, in our case, um, I think we want to be our own boss, but we also want the freedom to work when we want to work. So we don't necessarily do a nine to five job. We probably do more hours than we would do in a corporate business on occasions. But we do it when we want to do it. So if we need an hour in the middle of the day to do something different, um, we can do that because it's our choice. And within the workload that we've got, we have that freedom to decide how we work and when we work. And that's a massive um, benefit of running your own business. Uh, the flip side is that there are times when you cannot escape it. So you, you don't switch off at five o'clock, leave your business premises, shut the door and, and it's gone. You are kind of thinking about it 24 seven. Um, and there are ways of coping with that. And I think that's, that's the reason that a lot of businesses fail is that people cannot switch off and they, they just get so stressed with it that they can't cope with it. So what you've got to do is consciously switch off. You're not leaving your workplace and shutting the door behind you because it's always with you, but you've just got to focus on other things. And what do you, what's, uh, skills of you and your wife sort of how has how how's your previous sort of jobs helped you guys well you? sadly um when you've worked in corporate environments there's a lot of politics you know not necessarily some very good people get quite badly treated because um the political decisions that are made by others around them um what we what we've been able to do is not forget some of the bad things we've seen in corporate and that gives you the information you need not to repeat that as a business owner so i've seen some terrible behavior from from people i've worked with you know managers whatever really nasty sort of and not negative behavior it's not it doesn't benefit anybody but themselves 
I've seen people deliberately sabotaging other people because they want to get a promotion and the other person's kind of in the way. And I've seen them deliberately do that. I've seen them undermine people at meetings, all that kind of stuff, uh, which is totally non-productive. You know, it, it doesn't work. If you're good enough yourself, you should be able to back yourself, not have to resort to those kind of tactics. Well, being in, the, in, in our own business, we're obviously not going to do that. But we also are mindful when we see other people doing it that we can advise against it and we can help a little bit, give a little bit back to the kind of businesses we work with that tend to be smaller businesses. Um, and we can give them the tools they need to do a positive, productive job without the need for people to become quite divisive and nasty. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the big issue, isn't it? With a lot of a lot of us nowadays, we wanna we just focus on ourselves. I mean, it is needed, but I mean, like a lot of the times, people don't give a shit about what effect it has on others. No, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of um, I think I think the other the other factor is that when when we were in corporate, you would you would also see certain behaviours and you'd see where people went wrong. So every day is a school day for me. I learn something every day. I've probably learned several things already today through a couple of calls I've already done. Um, you're always learning, but you need to be able to put that into practice. You know, it's like this sort of uh, vision, version of insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing all the time and expecting a different solution, a different outcome. We always know, we know that we need to evolve and we need to tailor what we do and move with the market and also move um, innovatively where we can. Because um, we're all in a competitive market out there and we need to, you need to not necessarily differentiate yourself from your competition, but you need to make sure that you are good at what you do and that you're looking for opportunities to improve at all times. Yeah, yeah. constantly. It's what you said there just reminds me so much of like entertainment or singing or comedy, or all of that. There's a lot of that sort of politics going on. Mm. Um. And I mean, what from what you say there, you you must have never a boring day. There's always something unexpected, and always something that put that like what? <laughs> yeah, I think you've got to be looking for it. To be honest, if you, I think it's about being open-minded. You know, there isn't just one way of achieving an outcome. Um, you've got to be able to roll with the punches to a certain extent. I mean, I'd see it a bit like stand-up, to be honest, because I think with stand-up, people don't necessarily deliver a script. They have to adapt it depending on how the audience reacts and maybe a bit of banter and whatever else. And we've got to be the same. It's no good as just wanting to plow a, a very narrow furrow. We've got to, we've got to be open to suggestions from clients and also open to changing the direction if it's needed. But that's the other thing is the pace of change now in business is, is, is increased to a point where it's almost a constantly changing environment. And if you just have one way of working and one solution, it's hit and miss whether that's going to be the optimum solution for any situ given situation. So you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be able to move, roll with the punches and deliver constantly good advice and uh, good solutions. And what do you often, what's a typical working day like for you in, in this job? That's really difficult to say. So um, today I've got 
four Zoom calls, well, a Teams call and three Zoom calls, and that will probably take about three hours, um, three maybe three and a half hours of my time. And then I've got ongoing work, which is more getting my head down and um, pre preparing documents for a couple of other clients, which I'm trying to fit in around the Zoom calls. Uh, and I also, I'm also, for, for my sins, I'm effectively the FD, finance, finance director for the business as well. So I've always got an eye each day. I'll spend a small amount of time looking at the financials and making sure invoices are paid, etc. So that's the other thing about running your own business. You don't have this fantastic support network around you necessarily um, that you would have in a corporate job. Um, you know, if you want to do something, you could do it yourself. Or what we often do and what people do with us is they outsource some of those difficult um, functions to experts who can give them support when they need it rather than having to carry them as a permanent member of staff. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how, how much work goes into making sure that things get done the right way? I mean, you, you, as you said before, you've got loads of hours of meetings and you do lots of paperwork and that. But also, you, I'm guessing you put work in your mind as well and you exercise, you do other things. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think what goes into it is an attention to detail. Um, but I, I've got several kind of mantras on, on business. And one, one of my mantras is that business, you could break it down into two C's. Um, communication and clarity of communication. And if you can get that right, then you'll be successful. Because uh, when I was about 22, 23, first job, I worked for a training manager and he used to be a, an avid reader of management books. And he had loads of small, like information booklets on management topics. And he lent me one and it was um, a book that said, uh, and it was titled, Who Needs to Know? and it was only probably about 16 pages, but it just gave loads of anecdotes and loads of reasons why whatever you do in business or in, in, your, in, your, in, in your company, you need to think if you do something, who needs to know what you've done? Who's impacted by it? And it's interesting that it's stuck with me and, and I find that now is part of what I do and I think of it all the time. So if I do something with one of my clients, I make sure I tell the right person what I've done because it will impact them. I don't want them to find out when something goes wrong. It's that kind of thing. It's just, it's a live and learn situation, but it's also about attention to detail and good communication. And so and the days are unpredictable, effectively, and... No. No. So most of the time, because you prepare so much, you're rarely caught off guard. The only time I'm caught off guard is if, if I've got a project to finish and then some of my clients ring up with issues, I have to prioritise whether I resolve the issue and then go back to the project or whether I say, OK, I'll come back to you on that and maybe call them the following day. It's, so it's that managing your workload. Some of the time we've got plenty of time on our hands. Other times it seems like everybody wants to call you with a problem. So you've got to be able to be flexible around that. And that's when there are times when we do tend to work a bit longer than other people because we've just had um, various things have happened all at one time. 
and we can't legislate. We have currently got about 35 regular clients. So in a doomsday scenario, if all 35 call you, you're never going to be able to fulfill all that work. You're going to have to start scheduling it, moving things around. It's, it's, that's where the challenge comes in. Mm. And that's what they're saying in a quote, if you don't prepare, prepare to fail. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think the other thing is making sure that when you get the opportunity to get work finished, that you finish it. So there's nothing worse than when you've got six or seven pieces of work all not quite finished. Because then you, you, you're caught out with deciding what, what to prioritise. Sometimes if I've got a lot to do, I just pick up the first thing and I get it done so I can tick it off. Because you get this endorphine rush from ticking off a, a list of jobs. When you, Every time you put that tick in there or you highlight what you've done, you get a little bit of a, a, a good feeling about it. It helps you get through your day. And then it doesn't feel like it's so big. It's like with Kobe Bryant, he said when he's... You think of Mount Everest, you don't think of just climbing Mount Everest, you think of one step at a time. Yeah. Well, you know it, you're up there. Well, one of the one of the companies I worked for was Argos a long time ago. And um, one of my colleagues used to talk about the pizza principle. And the pizza principle was breaking every task down into bite-sized pieces. So slices. Um, and, and that worked well and that's another good thing I think being able to almost like break a project down into manageable tasks helps you to get over that feeling of overwhelmed feeling of trying to climb a mountain and one of the things that, must, that I'm intrigued to find out about and to hear your story on is like what have been some crazy and funny and amazing stories you've had with clients? Um, that's a really good question. Um, obviously there's a lot of confidentiality in what we do, but I think the funny things are when people surprise you, um, by people surprise you because you just don't, they do the most ridiculous things and you have to pinch yourself to believe that it's actually happened. Most of my, I mean, I could tell you, a, I'll tell you a story. Actually, it was not from business, but it was from previously when I worked, um, when I worked with art, when I worked for, for, for um, a food manufacturer. And it was a, they, they produced um, potato products and the potato products would start off with huge containers of potatoes being flumed in water through the system. And because they were flumed in water, it made a lot of mess. And because potatoes have got starch in them, it would become quite like a gooey mess. And they had their own effluent plant that processed all that. And there were a couple of guys who worked on our general duties crew that did all the tidying up and cleaning. And one of them had gone round to clear to to clear a blockage in the effluent plant and um, he managed to fall over he slipped because it was very slippy starchy stuff and we, we had it on cctv that the forklift driver who one of his colleagues had to drive the forklift around the back of the factory bring the forks down next to him and he had to roll onto it and be lifted up to get him off the effluent 
and it was just the most comedy thing you know if you had it now and you could put it on youtube this was 30 years ago if you could put that on youtube now people would think you'd staged it i think it was a you know a setup and literally it happened it was the only way they could, he just couldn't get up because it was so slippy and he was a big lad and he had to he literally had to roll onto the forks they had to lift the forks up and drive it back away so he could get onto dry land and roll back off and get up on dry land and things like that that happen. And I think the other thing, there's quite a few shenanigans that have gone on in companies that I've been in. Um, so, you know, once you get a load of people together, um, a lot of, particularly when you've got a lot of young people together, things go on between people. And I used to get to the receiving end of that in the sense that people who didn't work for the company, who had relatives working in the company, used to have a go at me and say, oh, you that place of yours, it's a knocking shop. And they'd attack me because their sister-in-law or whatever was having an affair with another guy in the factory. And it was nothing whatsoever to do with me, but I was like a figurehead person. It was like all my fault. And it was just like human nature. And that's one of the things as a young manager, you learn about the real life, what really goes on in companies. I mean, many people meet the partners at work, don't they? Yeah, and and that's what you get all the time. You get people who um, can be quite scandalous when people get together, but actually, then it's just life. It's just a place. Some people spend more time at work and more time with the colleagues than they do with the partner. And that, yeah, and that's yeah. why these things happen. Yeah, and then it's just a natural run of things that people like people or fall in love with people or fall out of love with people and and then that's your opportunity there you, you you've got a big field of people to look at and things happen don't they mm. <laughs> as you basically described strictly come dancing <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um yeah so that's i suppose that's a, a funny kind of stories a, a lot of what we deal with is um small business owners and they don't really understand anything about hr so if you're a small business owner and you know you sell pens or you you you're a plumber or whatever whatever it may be that's your specialist skill and that's what you're good at so trying to deal with some of the people issues is a is an unwelcome distraction so we can give that knowledge to them and give them a, a lot more to do but some of the stories that people tell I mean I'll give you the classic scenario that we get a lot we'll we'll go to a company and they'll say oh we need to sort this particular person out and we'll say okay so how long have they worked for you and they'll say oh they've worked for us for six years but they've never been any good and so then we'll say well okay so if they've ne never been any good have you ever told them they're not any good? And they'll say, oh, no, we've never told them. So they're expecting us to pick up a difficult employee six years into their service, and they don't even know that they're considered to be difficult or they're not good performers or whatever. So that's a common thing that we, we find. So it's giving the business owners the confidence to manage people is a big part of what we do. And some of the, sometimes we sort of laugh out loud at these things because... It is predictable, but it's also amazing that people would think that someone will improve if no one's ever told them that they're not particularly good. Uh, well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it, with humans? We all got a blind spot, 
unless we go out trying to look for the blind spots. We, we won't spot any blind spot within ourselves, so we have to ask for feedback from someone. Well, one of the things we set up in businesses, um, or I've set up a few times, is two-way feedback processes. So rather than traditional, rather than traditional annual appraisal, because I don't know how familiar you are with that, but what used to happen was that people would be given a series of, say, 10 objectives at their annual appraisal and that would be reviewed in 12 months time so 11 months and three weeks later they go to the draw take out their objectives and see what was it i was meant to have done in the last 12 months so it's not a live document and it serves no purpose other than to stress people out so i introduced a two-way feedback process where it gives the employee the chance to give feedback on the company and their manager and it gives the manager the opportunity to comment on the give feedback to the employee about their performance and their their um, contribution and it's good because it, it enables constant improvement in the individual and in the company and you can do that more regularly in a quick fire one hour meeting say two three times a year rather than waiting for a big meeting where it's meaningless just to tick a box yeah and it's also too long as well with the making a year thing it's hard to keep track of things it's better to focus on small chunks rather than big yeah. i mean i mean it's, it's just everything is about applying yourself so if people apply themselves to a an annual appraisal system they can do that because they can break it down and say i have two tasks every quarter and review them every quarter that would be good but that's rarely happens it ends up becoming a totally it ends up becoming a um just a a box ticking exercise so it doesn't serve any purpose it takes time it stresses people out and it, it's meaningless so the idea is to develop something that's more regular that's that you can use um you can use as a tool to motivate people and get people involved the more involved your employees are in, in the business, the more they buy into it and the better job they'll do. And this is the concept of employee engagement. Engage with your employees and they become brand advocates for your business. I've seen some fantastic results from this where people literally are promoting the business all the time because they feel proud to work in it because they have a, a say in it. They're listened to um, and they're influential within it. Where the old traditional stuff with the, you know, the old idea that trade union does a negotiation and you've got these big companies where the trade union represent the people, the people just do a downtrodden and all, all the rest of it, all the stereotypical stuff just used to lead to more and more conflict. Uh, and this way, with particularly smaller businesses, you can actually manage a very, very good um, pro, you can manage a very good process and make it good for everybody. Yeah. Have you have you been in the situation where you've had to be like a like they, they go for each other's throats or something? You have to be immediate and say, "Calm down, calm down." This is what. Oh yeah, yeah. I can. Um, th this is an interesting story, actually. But yeah, I, I, I was um, part of a disciplinary process at one company, and there was this kind of area manager on one side 
the, the guy, the supervisor on the, who was being disciplined on the other side, and he basically had stolen some money from the company. He'd, he'd not actually stolen it, but he'd misplaced money from collection. He was collecting money on, on doorsteps. And the manager basically said to him, look, you know, we've no choice but to dismiss you. And the guy who was sitting there, and he was a bit of a handy lad, <laughs> a bit of a boxer and a bit of a scrapper. And, and he went, okay, yeah, I know, I understand. And then the guy said, but we will need to withhold your holiday money that's owed to you because you're £900 short on the bag, i.e. the collection bag. And at that point, the guy launched across the table and got <laughs> hold of the manager by the throat. So his union rep was sort of got hold of him and pulled him off and went and calmed down for an hour. And I, to, I went out and saw him and said, look, you're going to have to calm down. You know, it's not doing anyone any favours. And I was a bit nervous. I was quite young at the time as well, but he was all right. But what's interesting is that about six, six weeks later, he'd been dismissed, maybe six months later, a new person on one of the rounds from the depot that he'd worked at was out collecting money and he started getting followed by a group of youths. And then this guy was just happened to be coming out of a pub and he saw this happening and he went and sorted the lads out to stop them. So despite all that angst and despite the fact that this guy had lost his job and had his holiday money taken off him, he had a respect for the process we'd followed and the way we dealt with it enough to support an, another guy, an ex-colleague, when he thought he was going to get mugged for the money. <laughs> so it just, it just kind of shows, it's bizarre, but it's, um, people do, under stress, people do things that are not necessarily in character. So that, I don't think he would naturally have gone across the table and grabbed the bloke by the throat. But I think he did it just under massive stress. You know, he obviously had debts. Um, and he's just suddenly losing his job. But then he was also losing some money that he was probably relying on. So I can understand why he'd be stressed. But ultimately, he was probably not a bad person. Uh, and that's, that's, I mean, that's what you said there is basically, I think, how people are with COVID, what you said there. Because people are stressed, so they are behaving out of character. Yeah. Now, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things we've noticed about COVID is that you've got a lot of people who've not worked very much since um, March. And what we're finding is that there are people who were top employees for, for, for clients who, since they've now come back after having done very little for nine months or so, are quite awkward. They're not really as motivated. So there's got a lot of work to be done there to get people back in the fold and re-motivate them i mean in the summer when we had the first lockdown there were people there was a unfortunately a, a rift developed between those who had to carry on working and those who spent all the time putting videos on facebook about and being in the garden all the time and having a drink and whatever else so it created a degree of them and us which was not pleasant for a lot of employers and and individuals because they don't see people, they don't see um, people as people. It's like with Liverpool and Man United supporters, they hate each other, so they don't see each other as people, they just see each other as the enemy. Yeah, I think that's probably right, yeah. It's uh, a good example. It's, 
and some things that I found very interesting, like you, like how do you build an authentic relationship with your clients? Like how do you, where it's workable for you and them? Um, I think I think the old adage is that people buy from people, so we obviously try to appeal to their appeal to their nature in, in terms of we can help them and then we build their trust by getting to know them and getting to know what their issues are there's no good us going in there and saying do this this and this without listening to first to what it is that's really stressing them out and what they need help with so if we can get some quick wins with our clients give them some good sound advice and give them that confidence that we can help them then we build the relationship and, and many of our clients have become friends um, because you work closely with them and you help them. So I think there's, you know, it builds trust and it builds confidence when you get results for them. We have clients who've literally told us that they've struggled with some issues for four or five years and eventually decided they'd speak to, to a professional about it. And then they can't believe they hadn't done it five years earlier because for us, what is simple for us can be hugely complicated and very stressful for a business owner with no knowledge of managing people. So it's about building trust and confidence. And, and, and to some extent, people don't need to like you, but it does help if you build that relationship so you can get on, on a good, good footing and they, they like meeting with you and they like listening to your advice and, and they feel free to share things with you pretty quickly. So it's about empathy. Ah, not judging. Hmm? Not, ju not, not judging people when they Correct. are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not it, judging, judging and, and uh, apply, employing your opinions in that way can be very alienating for clients. Yeah, it's, that's what they say in business they buy for yeah as you say buy from people and it's and how do you and how, how has it been so difficult during lockdown as opposed to before okay well the difficulty has been because of the remoteness so whereas before we could do network meetings in person so you could meet people shake the hands you know get a better feel for the person um and then if you don't to follow that up, then you would go and see them at the workplace. So you would get a snapshot of their environment, where they were working, how they were operated as a person. Now it's all done on this kind of forum, Zoom or Teams or telephone. It's less personal. Does that answer the question? I mean, I think that is that is a that has been a challenge for many businesses that they cannot literally go and see people. And, and having to do it over this forum is not as personal. No, I, I, I can see it because a lot of comedians, some of the comedians that I've seen, you know, I have a different, they come across very different when I'm in a conversation like you and me are having. But when you meet them in person, they're a completely different person. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the, much the same with, um, it's like the telephone, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's sort of trying, not trying to be funny, but you... You, you, you do you have a telephone conversation with somebody and you're not seeing any of the body language communicating via telephone they could be doing anything at the other end of the line and all you can gauge is the words and the tone when you meet somebody and this is why zoom and teams and this thing is a better forum than a telephone 
at least I'm getting a sense of your body language now and how much you're listening and that kind of thing. Um, whereas on a telephone, you've just no idea. It's just impersonal. I always feel awkward on the phone. I, it's, it's just feel, it's just so inhuman. It just doesn't, I mean, I do it, but it just doesn't, it feels so awkward. Yeah, I think, I think body, you gain probably, I don't know, something like 40, 40% of the communication is body language. And you lose that with the phone, so it then becomes sterile. Uh, and I think that's part of the issue. There are people I know who have had to make very difficult decisions and give bad news. And they've chosen to do it via telephone because they think they can do it without having to show any emotion and they don't want to be seeing the other person's emotion visually mm. they are, they're happy to talk on the phone because they can put the phone down and walk away far more difficult when you're dealing with someone in person it is my definition of a good manager actually is a person who can give bad news effectively because anybody can give good news you know i've I've worked with people before in very successful businesses and all they ever did was give good news and they got really big salaries and big benefits and fat cars and all the rest. But actually they never ever had to get the hands dirty and make those difficult decisions and actually communicate those decisions. Um, and that's the, that's the key to it. It's also about being active as well. So um, being demonstrative when you've got to make difficult decisions or well, easy decisions as well for that matter but when you're making decisions and you're communicating them the word your words and your actions should be matched so um there's a concept that a very good friend of mine who uh, coined and that is about the armchair general and it's that person that does everything but do the actual work they just sit behind their desk and give out the orders without any demonstrable support from themselves and those kind of armchair generals are the sort of people who work in a very political way in companies and are very negative and have a negative impact on the company and certainly the medium and long term. Um, so that's a, an, another concept that I tend to think of and work with. So you mean um, try and get other people to do the work and they play all the games and all that? To go well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and if he ever listens to this, he'll know I'm, talk I'm talking about him. But the guy in question, he used to manage internationally, managed some recruitment businesses. And he had one in, um, in Canada. They had a branch in Canada. And it was on a, high on a main high street. And the w every time he went there, and he'd only go there every, couple every three or four months, he'd notice that the windows were always really dirty. And no one could see in from outside on the street. And he said it was really unappealing. So he told them a couple of times and he had a couple of visits and he went the third time and he saw they still hadn't cleaned the windows. So he got one of the most junior members of staff there. He said, gave him some money. He said, go buy two buckets and some sponges and meet me around the back of the building. And we'll, uh, I've got, we've got a job to do. So literally, Lad came back, met him around the back of the building. They filled the buckets with water, soapy water. And he went out with the young lad and started cleaning the outside of the windows. And within about five minutes, all the staff came out and helped. But he'd asked them 
three or four times to do it. And because he then left and went off somewhere else in the world, they didn't bother. But eventually it was that demonstrative, look, if, I'm, if, it's, if, it's, if it's okay for me to do it, it's okay for you to do it. It's about actions speaking louder than words. It's a, following through who you say you are. In a way, a word that gets used, banded out about a lot, is it's about being authentic. You're authentic as a person. People believe in you, you're genuine. People believe in you and people will follow you. So a leader is somebody who is seen as authentic. Um, and I think that was the example I would give of that. Could I ask a different question here? Yeah. What would you make, because what do you make of people that are, because there's a lot of people that, you know, they, they fake appearing authentic and they fake do all these other things to appear a certain way so they can get people to do what they want, but they're extremely successful as well. Uh, I think, I think in a global sense, that's definitely true that there are people who can do that. But I think a lot of people see through the falseness of individuals. I've certainly worked with a few managers before, see quite senior managers who were just obviously didn't believe what they were saying. You know, again, um, they come across as being very condescending and, um, people would just not believe in them. But because they were the manager, they'd do what they were told, but would, they would no respect for them. And I think respect's another thing. It, as a manager or as a leader, you've got respect is more important than being liked. So people can respect you, but say, well, I don't really like him, but he's good at his job and he does what he says he'll do. That's a better compliment than saying, oh, he's a nice bloke. Because ultimately nice people do struggle to get on in a lot of businesses. Um, it, it's a good trait to have, but it's got to be along with um, other, other factors like do, you know, leading by example, being the real deal, um, and then getting that respect of the people. Yeah, yeah. letting people walk all over you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you, know, you know, quite a lot of very successful people have, not very well liked as individuals. Um, I mean, I remember ages ago um, listening to Carl Fogarty, the motorcycle racer, talking, and he was very successful. He was multiple world champion. And I remember him saying that his dad was a really nice bloke, and everyone loved his dad. And he remember him looking and saying, "They must wonder where I came from, because I'm a complete twat." <laughs> my dad was great and I remember him saying something of the worst that effect and me thinking <laughs> yeah you probably are but he, he had that grit and determination to succeed in a very competitive sport and I think probably had he been like his dad he wouldn't have been as successful because you're too busy appearing appealing to other people's needs rather than your own and then, then that's destructive in itself mm. yeah I think I think you've it's about balance, isn't it? You know, it's a balance. You, you need to go into a situation knowing what you need to get out of it, but also weighing up the needs of the individuals who are impacted by it. It's going back to the who needs to know thing as well. You know, I've seen some people make some very good decisions in businesses, but they fail to communicate to everybody else. And it's caused massive embarrassment and a lot of heartache to other people. So 
although it was the right thing to do, it's not deemed to be successful. It was deemed to have been a disaster. Um, yeah, effectively, yeah. With, with things you do, you've got to, it's, one, it's got to help you, but also, I mean, what has, has, what's made you successful, you make decisions for you, but you also make decisions for your client, and that's how you've built the relationship. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel, yeah, yeah, I suppose it is about a balance. So I've sometimes got to make the hard decisions for clients. So I've got to, they're looking to me to give them the advice and I will probably give them a range of solutions with accompanying risks. So if they want to solve a problem quite quickly, I will explain to them what the risk is of doing that, but then give them the methodologies to achieve what they want to achieve with probably an option of doing it the hardest way, slightly easier way, and then the very easy way. The very easy way is often the one that takes the longest and they don't want to do that. They want to take the risk and resolve the issue because small businesses cannot carry lots of problems. It's not possible. They've got to keep moving forward um, and any break in momentum can be catastrophic for a business. So, for example, if you have a business with 30,000 employees and you've got a dozen really difficult people in there that you need to get rid of, quite often you, you just drift along. It doesn't really matter because in the grand scheme of things, it's a minor irritation. If you've got 12 employees and two of them are really difficult, it creates massive problems for you as an operation. So it's more critical for them to deal with that decisively. Mm. Everyone has to pull their weight because every little small thing is so vital for them getting their, their gains. Yes, ab absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I feel it's... Um, it's very much about um, it's it, it's about dealing with the here and now, but having an eye on the longer term as well. The more immediate response is needed when you've got small business. You know, I've, I've actually we've come across businesses where there's been one or two employees are pulling the whole business down because they've only probably got seven or eight employees in total, and if quarter of your workforce are pulling in a different direction it has a massive impact on how successful you are. Hmm. And what would you say is the most important thing for a good employee? How much does them being trustworthy and, and them actually doing the work matter? Or you need both in order for them to be a good employee? Yeah, I think um, the old, an old saying used to be a fair, day, a, fair, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Okay, so I think it's a, it's a contract between two people. One person's providing work and the other person's providing the service to get the work done and they've been paid for it. I think it's when you get that balanced, you've got a good employee, an employee who's committed to the company and wants to do a good job, um, you know, and is not going to have a bad attitude because... I've known a lot of empl employees before who've been pretty good at the job, but they're so difficult and awkward and so combative with colleagues and with clients that actually you're better off with someone who's not quite as good at the job, but actually gets on okay with people. It, it's, it's a difficult one. That's why recruitment in, in its pure sense used to all be about, years ago, it was all about the best person for the job. 
So whatever specification you need, if you wanted the best guy to build that or woman to build that job, what's happening now and has happened over increasingly is you want somebody who can do the job, but who culturally fits in with the team. So you, it's no good having everyone who wants to be the managing director because they're just going to fight with each other. You need one or two people who are going to be what I call your engine room who are never going to maybe aspire to a higher position but will never let you down and do a solid job. And then you need one or two stars who are trying to get up the ladder so they can actually start to push each other a little bit but also aspire to higher positions so you've got succession um, and so on. So you need a balance in your, within your workforce um, and it's no good having... About working with other companies before, you've had like stellar teams um, where you've had three or four massive high achievers in a team. It never works out well. You need to split them up because all they'll end up doing is starting attacking each other because they're all there. They're all like, it's like having four alpha males. They're all trying to be the top dog, but they can't. It's impossible. Only one of them's ever going to get there. Um, and also, the other, th the other thing would be that you want people with potential or you want people who are going to be very good and happy with the, at doing the job they're doing. So it's a bit of a, again, it's a bit of a balance, really. You need a balanced team. Yeah. It's a bit like uh, Liverpool FC or Man City. In order to win the title, they need defender, they need a good, good sister. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly. Sport is, is a classic case. If you think back to the Manchester United team that was the golden generation, they all grew up together in the academy. The, the spine of the team grew up together in the academy of the Nevilles and Beckham and um, Scholes and, and so on. They all, they all grew up together. They knew exactly how each other played. They were all excellent players. And then all, all that team needed to do then, Ferguson or whatever, was put in people around that just to bolster that team. He'd already got the spine of the team in place. And it was the same in, in, in rugby league terms. Leeds Rhinos were the same. They had a golden generation of players who formed the spine of the team and they were massively successful because of that. I think when you when you're a different kind of team and you haven't got that homegrown backbone, you end up trying to cherry pick people from all over the place, and it's a bit wing and a prayer as to whether they actually gel together. You know, it's a, there's a lot to be said for. I mean, I'm involved with sport, as I've explained to you before. Um, sport is about nurturing talent and developing talent. It's no good being one of these sort of professional clubs that just buys in. Because, you know, it's, it, it almost fits, feels a bit perverse, really, that you're basically piggybacking onto everybody else's success. You know, other people develop good players and then you just buy them off them. Yeah, I find that quite funny. Like Man City, they spent so much money on things. You're not a Man City supporter, are you? <laughs> I'm not really a football supporter, but I do follow... I know, I know a lot of football people. But one thing I find funny with certain teams like PSG and Man City, they've not won the Champions League. You know, they brought certain things, but there's only I think there's only so far they can go mm. where it's just all this and no, no sort of heart and other things put in. Well, I think that was the good thing about Leicester City winning the Premier League um, was that it proved that you didn't have to be one of the top three massive spending clubs buying loads of international stars to actually win the hardest league in, in the world. Um, so it was a good thing for the, for the game, wasn't it, and for sport, to have what would be classed as an underdog, sort of second-tier 
Premier Club actually coming up there with a good team and a team spirit with, with a manager getting the best out of the players he'd got and working towards a common goal. So it's a good analogy, isn't it, with business? You know, if you get a good team behind you, you'll do well. And that's pretty much what, what it was Ranieri, wasn't it? That's what he did. It's got a flow. Yeah. But what you said there's also important for like athletes, like whether it be tennis players or musicians or even comedians or people at the top of their game, there's not just them doing it. They've got people around them. They've got like a management behind them. That's good. Mm -hmm. They have a good relationship with. They've got maybe PR. They've got this person, that person behind them. It's not just them. I think there's a much, um, the concept of managers in the sport and entertainment, um, personal managers in the sport and entertainment world is much maligned. But what they actually do is they take all the pressure off the performer to mean they can focus on just performing. So people I know in the past who've had coaches the same, you know, people I know who got rid of their coach and say, oh, I'm going to coach myself. It's not the same because you, you can't look at yourself from outside of your body. You need feedback. And it's the same with business management of sports stars. You know, it's difficult for somebody to spend the time and energy and effort they need to promote themselves when they're still trying to actually be the best they can be at doing what they do. So if you're an athlete, like you say, if, you, if you're a golfer, you don't want to be messing around dealing with contracts and endorsements and all the rest of it. You want to be playing golf, don't you? Yeah, because yeah. that's what you're good at and that's what you, you need to keep practicing. And there's many sports. I, mean, I think the, uh, the X factor generation, as I call it, um, feel that, you know, you, you become successful by winning a television competition. The reality is you become successful um, by sheer hard work and tenacity and, and resilience. You know, so uh, my particular favorite music is heavy metal. I've been into it since I was about 12, 10, 10 maybe, 10 years old. So I've had 45 years of uh, heavy metal in my system. Um, a lot of the groups that I watch now were groups I loved in the 80s, and they're still going. But when you see the backstory, didn't win a competition to become famous. They just used to play, endlessly play, out the back of a transit van, um, to, to audiences of 12 and 13 in some club in the middle of nowhere, just to hone their abilities. And eventually, by plugging away and plugging away, eventually they get noticed and they become very good at what they do. Because there's nothing better than being excellent at what you do to get you noticed. And that's just practice and persistence. And that's what they've done. And, and it's interesting listening to them because obviously, in the past, when in the 80s, they, these guys were gods to me. You know, I'd, I'd see them on stage at big venues and they'd be just like, they would be like God, you know. They were untouchable. Now I email them <laughs> and I banter with them because the world's changed, hasn't it? The world's shrunk and you can communicate better with people now. But, when you get, but now that they've survived all these years and they're still performing and they've still got a good fan base, they really appreciate it. So they're good with the fans. You know, they'll do polls with the fans to decide what, if there's any new um, numbers they want to put in the set when they do a live tour and things like that. You know, they'll, 
almost let the fans choose what they're going to play. That's just appreciation, isn't it? It's giving something back in many respects. And as, as you said, with teams and employees, what they're doing there is they're making the fans feel, feel more a part of them. Exactly. Well, you know, I think, uh, I think the first group to do the crowdfunding thing were Marillion, who were a progressive rock band. They were still going, they still got a massive following. Um, but they were massive in the early 80s. But they'd, they'd finished the record deal and they came up with the idea that what they would do is they, through their fan club, they'd get their fans to pledge £10 each so they could produce a new album. So do all the studio stuff and everything else. So they, they got all this agreed with the fan base and then they took it to EMI and presented it to EMI. And apparently they got a standing ovation because they could not believe what they put into it but it was because of the engagement with the fans and every fan who donated the 10 well donated every fan who pre-bought the album for 10 quid got their name in the sleeve so they had something like 10,000 names in the inner sleeves of, of, of the albums but the point was that they reached out to the fans and said this is the situation we've not we've lost our, our record deals come to an end we can get things distributed, but we haven't got the money to be able to actually produce the product in the first place. But if you all give us £10 in advance, and then you'll get your album for that, we can then make it in advance, which, is, which was a concept that loads of groups have done since then. So that would have been in the 90s. Um, and since then, it's become quite a standard process for a lot of groups to be able to get the product out is by getting pre-orders but it's innovation again isn't it innovation engagement is so many things that you would in a business model you would want to have yeah you've got as Mayweather said you've got to prepare all around the board <laughs> yeah it's it, I'd say honestly it's been absolutely great to have you on the podcast and thank you for coming on that's okay it's been a pleasure one the things that I would like to ask you now, um, what has your passion, how has your passion shaped you as a person? And yeah, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in life? And what, are your, what would you like to plug? Uh, I think what, what my experiences has taught me uh, is that, you know, you get back out of life what you put into it. So I feel a, a great reward from helping businesses. I feel a great reward when I'm coaching athletes. I feel a great reward from seeing their performances. Um, and if I was always thinking about myself and I wasn't thinking about the client or the athlete or whatever, I don't think I'd get anything like as much back from that. It's a bit like karma, you know? I, and I think there's too many selfish people out there that think of nobody but themselves. And, and I think ultimately there's no reward for them because yeah, there might be some short term stuff, but you lose a lot through doing that. There's a, it's like a job satisfaction thing. Um, yeah, that's job satisfaction thing. So when any, any companies out there that want, you know, support from knowledgeable people who want to help them, they should come to us um, 
we're, you know, we're, we're always looking for new clients and we're, we're happy to, because of the environment we're now in with a lot of remote working, we can pretty much cover nationally. We've always had clients in London as well as across the Midlands and in some cases in the North, but in, in general, we can pretty much work with anyone. We've picked up about four clients in the last um, three weeks and three of them have been quite remote from us, but it doesn't matter because we can do, we can, we can conduct our business over this kind of forum, Zoom or Teams or, or telephone. And obviously we're emailing documents to people on a regular basis. So we're not bounded by geography. And, and when we do have to go see our clients, we're more than happy to go and see them. Hopefully soon we'll be able to go do a bit more of that because it, it does promote better engagement. Yeah, no, I mean, the worst thing to do with anyone is be like McDonald's, where they say, oh, can I take your order? Bish, bosh, done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, McDonald's, eh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because the fast food chains are all slightly different, aren't they? But um, there's a limit to how far they can go, isn't there, in terms of how they can develop what they do? Because people want fast food. In fact, the only criticism I'd have of some of those places is if I have been into them, which is pretty rare, um, they've never been that fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's just one of those things, I suppose. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's an experience working in these places. I mean, I'm not, not forgetting them, but yeah, it's we we need a food fast sometimes. But yeah, all I can say is yeah, each their own, though, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one thing that is, uh, has happened since the all the lockdowns is I think people have probably engaged a bit more with families, and they're not quite so much eating out all the time or going for takeaways so people have had to actually um, start thinking about how they feed themselves and I think if anyone starts to add that up it's um, takeaway food is quite expensive actually um, so I, th I think it's uh, it's been a good opportunity for people to actually hone those cooking skills a little bit because that's something that's been lost so it'd be good to, you know it's a, one good thing to come out of people be having to be at home is that they've possibly started to look after themselves a little bit better in the food stakes oh definitely i think possibly you could go cook in the whole week for and it would be way cheaper than a whole set of takeaway meals like mm. one takeaway meal you could probably do for a whole week of cooking if you really yeah, push no i think i think i think the concept is that a takeaway for us because we, we we went through the first lockdown and we didn't actually have a takeaway until uh, probably for six to eight weeks but it was a treat when we had it we oh. felt it was a treat you know it's like it felt felt something special even though we'd eaten very well not having to cook was the special thing and just doing that and also supporting a local business to be fair who, who we actually knew they'd started doing takeaways and we said oh yeah we'll, we'll get a takeaway from you and you'd, you'd order it and then go and pick it up at a designated time so a bit different but yeah it was just a treat for us whereas i think the more takeaways you have the more they just become white noise it's normal isn't it <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous sometimes <laughs> uh. 
but I mean, a pizza, pizza hut's not a pizza's all right, but when it gets to McDonald's and that sort of takeaways, woof, put me off a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's each their own, isn't it? You know, some people, I mean, pizzas are a, pretty much a winner with most people. Um, but then McDonald's also has that kind of, and Burger King and KFC, they all have that kind of um, feel good factor for particularly for young people. It's a go-to place for a lot of young people. I think um, Nando's took that over a little bit for like my daughter's generation. They always were into Nando's as a as a, a place of choice. It's decent. It Nando's got all those spicy peri peri sauce. So I think it makes it better. And they've got the bread. They've got the chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all a variation on a theme, isn't it? But with different sort of. Yeah, exactly. They deliver the same thing, but it's just slightly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, let, let everyone know about your work and like how they can get in contact with you and like where to follow you. Okay, so um, our website is pretty good. Our website is www.gravitashr.co.uk. Um, and through that you can contact us and we'd be happy to help you all right sounds good so anyone if there's any employee that's like kicking about a bit they'll sort them out for you yeah exactly uh well i just want to say i i hope you've enjoyed it mark yes thank you <laughs>